they knew what writing looked like. It looked like our alphabet or like the Greek alphabet or something. And when they looked at Egypt, they saw not that kind of curve and swirl, but snakes and owls and zigzags and, and little caricatures of people. Uh, what, what kind of writing could that be? And when they looked at Egypt itself, this was this mysterious culture that had thrived for centuries and had pyramids and sphinxes and complete mysteries. And they thought that a culture that had such a strange writing and was such a strange culture itself had to have imbued those symbols with extra meaning. It couldn't possibly be that a, a list of those symbols meant uh, don't forget to pick up milk on the way home. It had to mean something about the structure of the universe and the nature of truth, that kind of thing. For nearly two millennia, no living, breathing human being could read the system of writing used in ancient Egypt. You know, hieroglyphs. Those cryptic pictures chiseled into stone or inked onto papyrus. Scholars, of course, made their best guesses, as scholars are wont to do, but everything stopped at conjecture. No matter who sized them up, these hieroglyphs just wouldn't speak. How could it possibly have been that an ancient civilization with monumental architecture and stunning art and obvious wealth and sophistication would leave behind mundane workaday messages in their writings? It all looked so very impressive. And because those meanings remained inscrutable, imaginations ran wild. These mysteries had accumulated force because that curtain had been drawn for thousands of years. Egypt fades off the world stage in, in roughly the year zero. And, and now for all the intervening centuries, people are free to attribute any magical power whatsoever to Egypt because there's no counterforce to say, wait, wait, you've got it all wrong. So in 1700, for instance, Isaac Newton, maybe the greatest scientist who has ever lived, writes that everything he has ever discovered, actually the ancient Egyptians had known before him. The theory of gravity, the, the picture of how the solar system works, Newton says the Egyptians had known all that. Well, they hadn't known it at all, but he couldn't help but attribute magical knowledge to this mysterious and now bygone empire. Edward Dalnick, he's author of The Writing of the Gods, The Race to Decode the Rosetta Stone. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. What do you make of this persistent, lingering air of mysteriousness surrounding ancient Egypt? Well, if we can shed any light on it this hour, we're going to. We're going to hear how translating the Rosetta Stone turned into a race and a rivalry, how collisions of egos and empires ultimately revealed what hieroglyphs are really about, and we'll look back at Egyptomania in the 19th century, how it began as a hunt for manuscripts but quickly turned into wholesale looting. European museums apparently wanted to get their hands on this stuff. Let's start with the famed Rosetta Stone housed in the British Museum and the story of breaking its code. What motivates a code breaker in the first place? What pushes a brilliant mind into this task? And what's the reward for all the sweat and toil? Each of us in our own lives has been a decipherer. Every five-year-old staring at the cat in the hat and trying to figure out what those funny marks on the page have to do with the drawings and stumbling her way along. Every one of us has been a decipherer. And at some point, it clicks for each of us. And all of a sudden, those squiggles that were impenetrable suddenly yield up their meaning, and then a whole world is newly open for us. But what if that new world is kind of ho-hum and hum-a-drum? It could be, but most people are so thrilled to have opened a door that was shut that even a, a message that doesn't have much to it on its face is exciting simply because it was secret, and now it's not. You won't be surprised in this Rosetta Stone story to learn that with every twist and turn, from its creation to getting buried, then excavated, then stolen, then finally translated, we're talking about clashing cultures, egos, and empires. The stone was carved in 196 BC to help prop up, symbolically, a pharaoh who was Greek to secure his power and rule over Egyptians. In the Middle Ages, long after that pharaoh was forgotten, the stone got repurposed with no regard for its inscriptions. It just met the needs of some builders, maybe Europeans, maybe Arabs, in propping up a fortress wall. Clashing cultures need fortresses, and fortresses need stones. 
The stone would be unearthed in 1799 by French soldiers, but was soon seized by the victorious British and sent to London's British Museum. Meanwhile, deciphering the stone's inscriptions was taking shape as a contest between two extraordinary European scholars. Their names were Thomas Young and Jean-Francois Champollion. Part of what makes it a marvelous story is that it's a race. The last person who writes hieroglyphics, the last person who's able to read them, does that very, very early on in about the year 400 or so. And even before then, knowledge of how to read hieroglyphs had faded. Now nobody knows anything about them. And then in the year 1799, somebody stumbles on the Rosetta Stone, the large four-foot-high or so black stone that looks kind of like a headstone in a cemetery. And it has writing in in different languages. Uh, One of them at the top of the stone is the hieroglyphs, these mysterious Egyptian snakes and vultures and owls. And then there's something mysterious in the middle. And then at the bottom is Greek, which people do know how to read. And they presume from the instant they see this, it must be that the Greek message, which they can read, is the translation of the hieroglyphs, which they can't read and which people have been dying to read for thousands of years. And now two rival geniuses, Thomas Young, an Englishman, and Jean-Francois Champollion, a Frenchman, set out to be the ones to read those hieroglyphs for the first time. Each of them is brilliant. Each of them had been a child prodigy. They're competing with each other because this is one of the great intellectual prizes of history. And the man who solves it will not only bring glory to himself, but to his nation because he will solve this age-old mystery. Um, so they're, they're in a race with each other. They're utterly different in character. Young is a, a brilliant all-arounder. He's, he's a scientist who's made some of the greatest accomplishments in physics since Isaac Newton. Champollion is interested in nothing but Egypt. Egypt and only Egypt is his concern. Young will take on any puzzle whatsoever and has an unmatched track record of solving them all. Champollion doesn't care about anything except this one riddle of the hieroglyphs. The two of them at the start don't know that the other one exists. They're both looking at copies of the Rosetta Stone, both trying to translate these hieroglyphs. When they look at first, the first people who see the Rosetta Stone think that it will take about two weeks to decipher it. In the end, it takes 20 years. I promise we won't take 20 years to tell this story. We've got less than an hour, so we're going to need to do a little racing ourselves. If you were directing a Rosetta Stone movie, you'd probably want the two main rivals to have fairly divergent personalities. Maybe you'd play on some stereotypes. Maybe the Englishman could be a reserved polymath, and the Frenchman, oh, probably passionate, maybe a bit overly emotional. They were very different. Champollion was fiery and furious, the kind of person who, if he had lived in modern times, would constantly be pounding his horn in traffic and yelling at the window at the idiots who are in his way. He's brilliant, he's impatient, he's furious. Each day he's ecstatic at the marvelous thing he's done or despondent at how the world is thwarting him. Young is a much cooler customer, never raises his voice, occasionally will make an ever so sly uh, remark insulting some rival, but very, very quiet. If Champollion's intellectual weapon was a kind of club, Young's was a, was a fencing sword, a, a different style altogether. But Young, uh, although he wasn't one to yell and scream like Champollion, nonetheless knew uh, in his heart that he was a surpassingly uh, brilliant person. He was ferociously competitive, although he wasn't a chest beater like like Champollion was. But in every contest he'd ever been in, in every intellectual rivalry he'd ever taken on, he had won. And everybody knew that, that there was no, no competing with him. In the pantheon of scientific geniuses, we find really big names, from Aristotle to Einstein. But the name Thomas Young might not ring a bell. It should. When he was just 28, long before he started thinking about hieroglyphs, he took on a certain fellow named Isaac Newton and acquitted himself admirably in a matter concerning physics. Newton, you see, had argued that light consists of particles. Young was convinced that light is made of waves. And he devised the famous double-slit experiment just to prove it. In the end, both men were right and wrong, 
Light, you may have heard, is both wave and particle, but that's another story. Meanwhile, as we've already indicated, Isaac Newton was also wrong about how advanced the ancient Egyptians had been. And this same Thomas Young, who helped correct Newton on the nature of light, later had a hand in undercutting Newton's considerable overestimation of the wisdom of the builders of the ancient pyramids. Everyone involved assumed that hieroglyphs represented ideas, even complex scientific or theological ideas. These pictures were far too complex to be mere sounds or symbols. They had to be jam-packed with meaning or even magical. For modern Americans, say, when we look at the flag or a drawing of an American eagle or something, we don't say the eagle stands for the sound E. We say the eagle is a symbol of pride and might and, and majesty and, and uh, power, that kind of thing. That's how Thomas Young and everyone looked at hieroglyphs. A drawing of a snake, they said, represents uh, who knows what, danger or, or caution or beware or risk or something like that. Everything he thought had a symbolic meaning. But then he comes along with this deciphering of, of the name Ptolemy, and he says, wait, some of these hieroglyphs don't have those deep symbolic meanings. Some of these hieroglyphs are just sounds. Uh, people have been wrong to imbue them with all this might and mystery. It's just sounds like any other alphabet. It's a strange-looking alphabet, but that's all it is. It's another way of making a mark on paper that stands for a sound, just like every other alphabet. Both of these men, Thomas Young and Jean-Francois Champollion, were so learned in foreign languages, I'm tempted to call their expertise ridiculous. But Champollion was obsessively focused on a certain ancient language, Coptic. Young was more all over the map. And his far-flung interest served him well in cracking, not the Rosetta Stone itself, but the code. And I find this part intensely interesting. His big break came with an insight drawn from his understanding of written Chinese, of all things. What led him to his first breakthrough in reading hieroglyphs was looking at Chinese characters. He understood perfectly well that they would have ways to write things for all the, all the things that occur in China. There would be a Chinese word for river and a Chinese word for house. But he wondered, how would the Chinese write names? How would they write a name like Napoleon that, that never occurred in China? How would they do that? The only way he could think of was that they would use Chinese characters that had the right sounds. If there was something that sounded vaguely like na and pa and lo and on, they, they would string those characters together, and that would give a way to write Napoleon uh, in Chinese characters. And once he had that idea, it dawned on him that maybe the way to crack these hieroglyphs, which no one had ever thought of before Young, would be to see if he could find a name somewhere in hieroglyphs and sound that out. The most conspicuous thing in the hieroglyphs, though, aside from the, the fact that they're picked, which is remarkable, is that some strings of those hieroglyphs were enclosed in an oval so the most conspicuous word in the Greek, Thomas Young decides, is Ptolemy, the name of the pharaoh. And the most conspicuous thing he sees in the hieroglyphs are these hieroglyphs inside cartouches, inside ovals. And he decides that maybe the name Ptolemy, maybe those hieroglyphs in the cartouche are how the Egyptians wrote the name Ptolemy. Maybe what the cartouche is, is to symbolize this is special. This isn't just another word. This is, this is the pharaoh. This is the ruler. And we're going to make sure no one can miss how special that is by encircling it. And so what Thomas Young tries to do is match the Greek letters in the pharaoh's name Ptolemy with the string of symbols in the cartouche and say, maybe the first sound in Ptolemy corresponds to the first uh, hieroglyph in this cartouche and the next letter in, in Ptolemy's name in Greek corresponds to the next hieroglyph in the cartouche and so on. And that's his first guess. And if he's right, he will have been the first to, to read a word, to sound out a word in hieroglyphs in nearly 2,000 years. But what he doesn't do, he sticks with this notion that most of these hieroglyphs must be saying deep things about nature and the universe and eternity and infinity, that kind of thing. So he says, I've learned to read one name, and that's a remarkable breakthrough. But he doesn't stick with it. He goes back to his theory that I've done this one name, but now back to the deeper question of what is the, the profound symbolic meaning of the hieroglyphs in general. 
not just these ones inside the cartouche. Thomas Young, one of the brightest stars of his age. He's figured out this much about hieroglyphs, that names are sounded out in syllables. But having translated that one name, Ptolemy, he immediately reverts to his initial assumption that if they're not names lassoed inside a cartouche, all the other symbols are complete ideas, not just phonetic. I don't know. Maybe there's a lesson there about the stranglehold of a presupposition. Thomas Young made the great breakthrough that inside a cartouche, the hieroglyphs were phonetic. But the next step to say maybe outside a cartouche, the hieroglyphs are still phonetic, he couldn't do that because he was so deeply wed to this notion that the hieroglyphs carry weighty meanings, that if you could read them properly, they said things like E equals MC squared. They didn't say things like, remember, uh, you have a dentist appointment tomorrow. Still, he's made the first critical move in decoding hieroglyphs, even if he circles back into a blind alley. We can see him there through the lens of time. We could shout out to him, but he wouldn't hear us. Maybe we can't fully relate to Young's intellectual virtuosity with that first big breakthrough, but most of us can relate with his stubbornness or even his laziness in forgetting to push back on conventional thinking. That's all hindsight on my part, of course. Across the English Channel, there is Champollion, chomping at the bit, pardon the pun. Champollion makes the next crucial breakthrough as Young begins to dither. That breakthrough comes as he realizes that Egyptian language isn't actually dead. It's just mostly dead. A good bit of old Egyptian lingers on in Egypt's homes and on her streets, he guesses. This residue of Egyptian is called Coptic, and Coptic provides the next link in this story about the race to understand ancient Egyptian. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Young and Champollion looking at these hieroglyphs are trying to decipher a language that no one has spoken for thousands of years. But what Champollion knows is that there was a language in Egypt called Coptic that was spoken after Egyptian died out. And what, what Champollion gambles on was that if he can study Coptic, this language that came after Egyptian, that will give him a pathway back towards Egyptian, this, this dead language. The relation between Egyptian and Coptic is, is like the relation between, say, Latin and, and French or Italian today. If all we had left of Latin was French or Italian, and it was Latin that we really were after, we could use French or Italian maybe as our, as our handhold to grab our way uh, back to the language that was our real quarry. So Coptic um, was still around. Uh, Champollion found dictionaries of Coptic. Uh, he found manuscripts of Coptic. So he learned this language. And his notion is that by sounding out words in Coptic, he's going to be able maybe to work his way back to the Egyptian, to the dead language that he's really after. Now let's not forget, as Young and Champollion are chipping away, not on the stone, but its symbols, World travelers and antiquarians from all over Europe are fanning out across Egypt like insatiable tourists looking for temples to sketch, maybe a few artifacts to steal. Some of them are also transcribing inscriptions from monuments, and these copies will soon play a key role in breaking the code. No smartphones for this. You have to sketch it all out by hand, faithfully or not so faithfully. Bear in mind how difficult it would be if you didn't know what the things you're copying mean, and so you don't know how careful you have to be. If it's a snake that has a, uh, a bend halfway through, um, is that bend just there by, by happenstance? Is it crucial? Does it matter if the snake is facing to the right or to the left? There's no photography yet. And so the only way that these copies of hieroglyphs get back is by these careful transcriptions of these fanatical travelers who in some cases are risking their lives uh, climbing up ladders in temples to copy down uh, hieroglyphs from, from high on temple walls. Some hieroglyphs 
you didn't have to copy. You could you could find papyrus or or you could find mummy wrappings with writing on them and bring them back. But a lot of the grand writing from temple walls and obelisks and things like this is copied by these intrepid travelers. Um, but they did make mistakes in the course of, of copying, which for a decipherer made made life all the harder. Not only were they taking on this problem that in itself was was next to impossible, but there were mistakes in what they were trying to figure out uh, in the in the copies they were looking at, and so things took on this extra layer of of difficulty. One of these mysterious bits of writing that turned up not on the Rosetta Stone but later was kind of like the Rosetta Stone. It was an obelisk, and it had writing on it that was in Greek and Egyptian on the base of an obelisk. One of the Greek writing talked about Cleopatra. It wasn't our Cleopatra. The Egyptians tended to recycle names. It was another Cleopatra. And then there was a cartouche on this obelisk. And they hoped that that cartouche said Cleopatra. And now, back in Europe, Champollion sees copies of this new cartouche. He sees that several of the letters are in both names. Ptolemy has a T and an O and an L, and so does Cleopatra. And so now, for the first time, Champollion can compare two different names and hieroglyphs, and he can check if he was right when he guessed what hieroglyph spelled out Ptolemy. Those hieroglyphs should turn up in the right place in the name Cleopatra, because Cleopatra has the same sounds. Um, it's, it's like if uh, you were checking an answer in a crossword, if you had an across answer, and finally you had an up and down answer that, that met it. You could check if your if your first answer was right, and that's what Champollion does, and they do match, and so he's thrilled with that, and that's the first time Champollion knows that he's not just kidding himself. It seems really, really likely that he's on the right track. Phonetic symbols have a simple function. They represent sounds, not deep mysteries. Cracking the Egyptian hieroglyphic code began with the misleading assumption that through these writings, ancient wisdom or deep secrets or lost sciences might emerge from the dust. Not so much, it turns out. So what does the Rosetta Stone itself actually say? That should be of obvious interest here. The decree it contains was written by Egyptian priests to bolster the legitimacy of a Greek ruler, Ptolemy V, who was just a teenager and whom fate had dealt an awful hand you see, his parents had been murdered, his early reign had been racked with civil wars and attacks from enemies abroad, and through all these perils, Ptolemy V had been especially generous to these Egyptian priests and their temples, maybe currying favor with them, so that now these priests were publicly backing him with a grand decree inscribed in solid rock. That's one way to make a public statement, and I guess we still make big statements by inscribing things in stone. Oh, and the stone also says that copies of this written message were to be placed in temples throughout the land. Because of those copies, you see, the full text has been recreated. The text, unsurprising on one level, it's important people asserting their importance to secure their importance. But maybe in gaining access to what these symbols signify, we've actually gained access to something as wonderful— People from millennia ago who are more like us than anyone thunk. They didn't possess the secrets of the universe. They were human. Their writing deals with perfectly human stuff. Why should it be disappointing to discover human voices? For instance, now that hieroglyphs can be read... Scholars have found uh, love letters and notes. They've Some of them are, are the most uh, everyday glimpses into Egyptian life. One person writes another, uh, I wrote to you uh, a week ago and I still haven't heard back. What's going on? We find a will from a woman who writes, I've raised eight children and, and I sacrificed, I slaved my life away for them. And now what do I hear from them? What gratitude do I get? Nothing. You, you can hear these voices. But, but on the other hand, a lot of what the Egyptians believed and took for granted that they believed in magic and witches and, and this kind of thing um, is completely foreign to us. It's a culture that is near in the sense that we read the love poems or, or the that kind of thing. And we say, yes, I know what that, what that kind of loneliness feels like. And, and then we read um, about millions of millions of mummies, say, and not just people, but that snakes were mummified and mice and cats by the million. And we think, 
boy, I don't understand this culture at all. And both those elements are there. These were people just like us and people utterly different from us. And that's the, the fascination trying to navigate that strange split. I don't know about you, but I might just spare myself the effort, probably because I haven't troubled lately to have anything mummified, not even a cat. Just can't relate to that practice. But Edward Dalnick has a way of potentially bridging this divide between us and the ancient inhabitants of Egypt. It'll interest you, I think. Perhaps the function of language in preserving human thought is akin to funerary practices that preserve a body. You know, making mummies. If you take writing seriously, maybe so seriously that you would take pains to engrave words into stone, maybe that's all an effort to still be around even after you're gone. Maybe that's a kind of ongoing life. Through nearly all of of human history, people told stories, they sang songs, but when they died or when when their children or or the last people who, who remembered them weren't around anymore, that entire world was gone. So what writing did was essentially set down memory. That was that was a new invention. No one had thought that could be. And the Egyptians, they the reason my book is called The Writing of the Gods is because that's how Egyptians described hieroglyphs. They were amazed that here was a technology, here was something that would let people live on in the sense that you could read what they thought about after they were gone. It was a a way that would let people far apart speak to one another because they could send a message from one to the other. So these were messages across time, across space. There had never been such a thing that you could find a way to take the sounds of speech and set them down on paper so that this ink marks or these marks in clay could speak again, struck the Egyptians who were almost the first to think of it, uh, as a miracle. They called it the writing of the gods because no human could have been marvelous enough to come up with such a thing. It could only have been a gift from the gods. Writing was that special. So if there's such attention and investment in the preservation of ideas through writing over time, that's very parallel to the preserving of a body as a mummy, too. It's not a bit of a surprise that the Egyptians, who were so preoccupied with with continuity and fighting death and eternal life and, and living on and carrying on, should have been so thrilled with this discovery that set down messages that lasted and endured forever so that you could speak across time. You could, in a sense, conquer time. That was another part of, of the magic of writing for them. I think that's enough about solving crosswords and cartouches. It's all compelling drama for sure, but equally compelling is the story of how and why the Rosetta Stone came to light at all. Once the riddle of hieroglyphs was solved, scholars were able to deduce the following, that the stone got carved in 196 BC. It got unearthed in 1799. In subsequent decades, it got translated. But all that passive voice makes you think that things just happen. They don't. In every instance, every step along the way, somebody or a bunch of somebodies had their reasons, their motives. Let's tackle first the motives of our decoders, Champollion and Young. Champollion really did want nothing more than to catch on to what Egypt was about. He was a modern man in the sense that he was skeptical of Egyptian views about uh, about immortality and why they would uh, make these mummies of animals and things like that. But he, he was desperate to understand the culture. Uh, he wanted to know what these people were about. Thomas Young didn't have any of that. This was the most uh, prominent, provocative riddle of his age. Thomas Young was the most brilliant riddle solver of his age. So naturally, he took this on. But it wasn't because Egypt spoke to him in particular. It was because mysteries spoke to him in particular. And here was the outstanding mystery of his day. That's a pretty clean, crisp distillation of the personal motives of Young and Champollion, each having a different sort of intellectual passion. What about the original motives of the ancient inscribers of the stone or the reasons for such public commotion centuries later when it was discovered by Europeans? Well, as to the stone's origin, credit goes to a tribe called the Macedonian Greeks, 
under their leader Alexander the Great. They conquered a huge swath of the known world, and as occupiers in a place called Egypt, they hung on to that territory as long as they could. That's what occupiers do. What I'm getting at is that this famous chunk of rock, the most visited artifact in the British Museum, was the product of a mighty clash between two mighty empires. Toward the end of that occupation, the Greek rulers needed a bit of propaganda to go out, and that's what this rock essentially was. It was a proclamation. We are powerful. We're in charge of you, Egypt, and don't even try to rock the boat. Thank you very much. Now, get this. When the stone was discovered two millennia later by the French, the new geopolitical situation, well, it was kind of deja vu all over again. Two mighty empires, this time the British and the French, vying for global dominance. And were it not for this clash between the European powers, that stone would likely still be lying face down in the foundations of that fortress. And here's a twist that's really quite poetic. Written on by Alexander's heirs in Egypt, uncovered 2,000 years later. This stone is something we know about only because another megalomaniac, Napoleon, was consciously trying to mimic Alexander's conquests. Napoleon was was astonishingly ambitious. He, he wanted to conquer the world. Britain had already conquered India, which was, was a great coup for them. He needed something to match it. Egypt was famous and poorly ruled, which meant it would be open to conquest. And that was enough to lure Napoleon. Plus, Alexander the Great had conquered Egypt, and Alexander the Great was Napoleon's model. So off he sails to Egypt because he wants one more jewel for his crown. He's going to show the world that he is a proper descendant of Alexander the Great. In in the course of conquering Egypt, it so happens that someone just about trips over the Rosetta Stone. But that wasn't the point of the venture. The point was for Napoleon to uh, add yet another uh, triumph to his long list of coups. And while trying to conquer the world, Napoleon apparently was weighing the potential value to himself of reclaiming the lost legacies of Egypt. He thought these would be useful politically, symbolically. So he brought along a team of 160 scientists, archaeologists, engineers. His plan was for these folks to handle the academic stuff while he handled the military stuff. And at the crossroads of these converging aims we find some French soldiers digging up a curiously carved stone with three writing systems on it. It happens near a town called Rashid, or Rosetta, and it's in the Nile River Delta. I'm Marcus Smith. You're listening to Constant Wonder. For far too many years, I believed the old falsehood that French cannonballs destroyed the nose of the Great Sphinx. No, Napoleon and his people actually didn't do that. But they did help light the fire called Egyptomania that swept across Europe during this time period. I spoke with Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson about all of this. He's at Lincoln University in England and author of The World Beneath the Sands, The Golden Age of Egyptology. Well, Napoleon Bonaparte is an absolutely pivotal figure in the birth of Egyptology as a discipline. In 1798, Napoleon, who has yet to proclaim himself emperor of France, he's looking to establish Republican France as the new Rome. And he knows that all great civilizations have looked back in time to previous eons um, for inspiration. And he's very clear that if France is to be the new Rome, then like ancient Rome before it, it must conquer Egypt. Uh, It must lay its claim to the civilization of the pharaohs in order to assert itself as as the up-and-coming nation. But he has another motive. He sees himself personally as a new Alexander the Great. And so these two things come together in Napoleon's mind. And in 1798, he sets out with a great expedition to Egypt. And it has two objectives. One is to discover the history and the civilization of ancient Egypt and to record it accurately. But the other, quite frankly, is a military objective. It's to seize and capture Egypt and deny the British uh, an easy route to their growing uh, colonies in India. So science and warfare come together in the, in the Napoleonic expedition. 
And although Napoleon loses the war, in a, in a way he wins the, the battle for science. And his expedition and the publication of that expedition is the very first to attempt to understand ancient Egypt in a modern scientific way. And, and it launches this new discipline of, of Egyptology. So if he launches what is European activity there in Egypt. Could you describe what it was like there locally before the Europeans got on the scene, before Napoleon even showed up there? Did the local populations there have a vested interest in uh, the, the antiquities? It's a really good question. And, and to be honest, we know rather little about the Egyptians' own attitude to, to their own heritage before the Europeans arrived in earnest. Partly, of course, it was that Egypt was a province of the Ottoman Empire. Um, Indeed, it had been under foreign domination for for many, many centuries uh, before Napoleon showed up. And the Egyptian population were were hard-pressed. They were heavily taxed. They were very impoverished. And in a sense, I suppose you could say history and heritage is, um, is a pastime for those who have time to think about something other than where the next meal is coming from. But for most Egyptians at that point, their focus was very much on on matters closer to home. There were a few Islamic scholars who speculated on the origins of of ancient Egyptian civilization, but in a sense they were put off by the fact that Pharaonic Egypt was a pagan civilization, pre-Islamic, indeed pre-Christian, and they thought that it was perhaps not an entirely fitting subject to study. So, in short, there's very little evidence of Egyptology before Napoleon's uh, arrival in 1798. Well, would anybody there locally, or anybody in the world for that matter, have been able to say, these pyramids, this sphinx, this temple, go back to uh, such and such a person, such and such a ruler, such, such and such a pharaoh? Um, the short answer is no. There have been a few plucky souls who had visited Egypt in the 16th, 17th, uh, and 18th centuries. But without the ability to read ancient Egyptian inscriptions uh, and make sense of them, their speculation on the origins of the civilization and its its monuments was pretty wild and and wide of the mark. So there were a few travelers' tales, but really nothing that you could call scientific archaeology until Napoleon's expedition. It was after Mr. Bonaparte had skedaddled from Egypt and after the British had confiscated the Rosetta Stone, that the general fascination with ancient Egyptian stuff mutated into greed for it, and the greed became a contagion, the contagion of frenzy. The whole scene was like a bar fight in an old Western movie. There were European agents, a mishmash of antiquity hunters racing to be the first to dig up mummies and to chop up monuments. They were literally hacking their booty out of stone and then shipping it all back home. They chopped up mummies too, but let's save that for another day. One such antiquities collector, so-called, was Auguste Mariette. Mariette would eventually become one of the greatest, most respected Egyptologists of the era. He would uncover some of Egypt's greatest treasures, and he would later speak out against all the rampant looting. He just didn't start out that way. He went there in the first place, hoping to find Coptic manuscripts, but uh, too many of these had already been claimed. He was very late to that game, and his whole venture seemed a bust. But he didn't want to return home empty-handed. He put his ear to the ground for rumors on the street or from camel drivers or from anybody else who might know where Egypt's greatest remaining treasures might be buried. In the course of things, he befriended a Bedouin tribe, and they accommodated him and guided him to the site of some of the most significant discoveries ever made in this part of the world. He knows he has to excavate in the sands, but he hasn't got an official permit. So what does he do? He digs at night, secretly, and before dawn, recovers his tracks in the sand so that when the inspectors start their daily rounds, they won't suspect anything. And then when eventually he does start to find things, he even goes to the trouble of manufacturing fake antiquities to fob off the inspectors and keep the real things for himself and for his employers. So there's a fair bit of skullduggery in these early days of Egyptology. Skullduggery is maybe putting it mildly. I mean, I'm just imagining the atmosphere here because if you're doing this under cover of darkness and if you're using subterfuge to get your work done, that's high drama right there. And that kind of 
even heightens the stakes in a way, I think. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think the atmosphere on some of these uh, early digs must have been quite tense, not knowing whether you'd be discovered, not knowing whether you'd have to not only forfeit your excavation, but all the finds that you'd uh, uncovered. Uh, a, a lot of fairly basic things to have to deal with, plagues of locusts and, and droughts and storms and, and sandstorms and, and lack of fresh water. I mean, the, the conditions on an early excavation in Egypt were pretty harsh, and I think these early archaeologists were made of pretty strong stuff. You mentioned Mariette. He has quite an adventure with a particular temple that he tries to unearth, or at least to excavate, if not to uncover it entirely. It's kind of a story that gets told next to the King Tut discovery story. But his find was, in, in some ways, uh, I, I can't say more spectacular, but equally spectacular. Well, it was astonishing. Um, Mariette was blessed with a, a fo- photographic memory, and he had read extensively not only recent works on, on Egypt, but all the classical authors as well. And he knew from his knowledge of the classical authors that there were... Uh, myths and legends about a great temple, a great underground catacomb for the sacred bulls uh, of Egypt, uh, known to the classical authors as the Serapeum. And he desperately wanted to discover this temple. And he was extraordinary at picking up clues and following them. And and to cut a very long story short, he uh, devoted himself for uh, more than two years to this task of, of discovering the lost temple of, of the Serapeum. And it lay under the sands of Saqqara, just south of Cairo, uh, buried beneath meters and meters of, of sand. Um, but through sheer diligence and persistence, Mariette uncovered it. And it is one of the great wonders of the ancient world, um, fabled in classical times and, and equally impressive to visit today. So, yes, it's, it's been eclipsed to an extent by Tutankhamun's tomb, but it was and remains an extraordinary discovery. A comparison to Indiana Jones is inevitable, if a bit cliched. Mariette had to be sly about his work. He gets a lead. He starts to dig. Detractors and competitors abound. Bureaucrats demand to see permits. You just can't fight them all off with a whip. So you play a few tricks. He hides the prized objects moves them around at night, and when the authorities finally inspect his dig, it looks empty. By then, of course, everything's packed into boxes and well on its way to France. That's how he rolled. Well, among his greatest discoveries was this ancient necropolis dedicated to these sacred bulls. The Egyptian cult of the bull had survived under various names and in different forms from about 3000 BC right up to the days of Constantine. We're talking about nearly three and a half millennia. Here's Toby Wilkinson again, talking about these revered animals buried in the Serapeum where Mariette found them. One of their gods, the god Ptah, was incarnate in a bull, a bull with special markings on on its head. And this sacred bull was kept in an enclosure in the Temple of Memphis and and worshipped as an incarnation of the god. Um, And when the bull died... It was interred with great ceremony, great pomp and pageantry, in an enormous stone sarcophagus uh, buried deep uh, under the, the sands of Egypt. You know, with each successive bull, there would be another burial. Uh, and over many, many centuries, there were hundreds of these catacombs. And it was, you know, an, a remarkably long-lived tradition in ancient Egyptian religion, and one that Mariette brought back to life by discovering it. The ironic twist in the career of Auguste Mariette came as he was living out his final years in Egypt, employed by the government there to protect antiquities. That was his job. Who better to protect your home than its former burglar? By the time Egyptomania died down, complete obelisks had been ferried away, installed in places from Rome and Paris to New York City. Museums in London to Berlin were filled with smaller treasures than those. And here's a footnote you gotta love. In exchange for its obelisk, Paris gave Egypt a gift, an enormous clock that never worked. As recently as 2021, Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities was still trying to make that clock tick. It happens to a lot of movements or manias. Everything subsides eventually. The passion for collecting things from Egypt, it subsided too. And professional, reputable archaeology was able to establish itself and gain a footing. 
in, in origin, the scrabble for Egypt is, as you say, it's to acquire predominantly objects to display in the great museums of the European capitals. And subsequently, of course, in the American cities as well, because any civilization worthy of the name must have great objects from previous civilizations. That, that was a kind of given in, in 19th century political thought. But as more and more excavations take place in Egypt during the course of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, um, so the whole business of archaeology becomes more professionalized. It becomes more scientific. Uh, and some of the more enlightened archaeologists, like Flinders Petrie, for example, beginning in 1880, recognized that you can learn so much more from a dig, not just from the, the, the objects of gold or, or precious metal that you discover, but from the little everyday things that people of the past have thrown away. Um, small objects of, of, of wood or of bone or of stone, um, the, the, the rubbish of everyday life um, opens a window onto the world of the past. And, and really from the late 19th century onwards, archaeology emerges as a proper scientific discipline um, as interested in the ephemera of daily life as, as in the treasures of the pharaohs. Could it happen all over again? I mean, could people go all gaga for the antiquities of Egypt? That's ah, a silly question. Because this all still speaks to us moderns in a huge way. I myself got sucked into the vortex when King Tut came to town, to America, that is. I saw his golden mask and treasures in the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. That was during his widely hailed 1978 tour. So the euphoria over whatever is concealed by sand in northern Africa, that's a frenzy not hard to whip up even today. And maybe the siren song that is inherent in Egyptomania, maybe that's perennial, never going to go away. Bringing things back to life, if not the mummies themselves, maybe just the language of those mummies. Their hidden, lost habits, stories and manners and customs, their apparel. Maybe these things once lost always produce a thrill when they reappear. Revelation. The lifting of a veil. We could leave it all there, but we have a bonus story for you. As we come full circle back to where we started, Edward Dalnick was sharing his take on curiosity, this universal urge we all seem to have. Remember him insisting earlier that no matter how old or new or complex or simple, a crossword puzzle, well, actually, I guess the big thing today is Wordle, emotional rewards of solving something are practically inevitable. Listen to his account of what personal satisfaction looked like on a fellow named George Smith. He's the guy who first deciphered the oldest tale, older than the Bible, including an episode about the flood. Pretty big stuff. Uh, Smith had his moment of epiphany while in the British Museum in London. This was an era when the intellectual life and scholarly life, especially in England, was a matter uh, mostly reserved for high-class people. This was not a career you would indulge in if you had to earn a living by the sweat of your brow. And George Smith had no family money, no education, no background. Uh, he didn't even have the equivalent of a high school education. But he worked as a printer's apprentice. In his uh, small bit of, of leisure time, he had taken to wandering into the British Museum and looking at the oldest writing they had on clay tablets, uh, cuneiform it's called. It looks as if a bunch of birds have walked around on wet clay, zigzag marks that go every which way, almost impossible to find any meaning in them. But in the course of his amateur studies, Smith began to think that he could see something in there. And he was so diligent and appeared so often in the British Museum that finally the keepers of this ancient writing, this cuneiform section, uh, first gave him a lowly job. And then as he did better, a little bit more responsibility. And it came to the point where this self-educated man knew more about these mysterious tablets than anybody else in the world did. And they were almost impossible to make sense of. They were these wedge-shaped bits of clay with these strange markings, as I say, and they had all been broken up. So it was not only as if you were trying to read strange markings in a, in a dead language that no one knew anymore, but as if you first had to assemble those pieces uh, into a jigsaw puzzle and then try to read them. So you had this layer upon layer of difficulty 
But George Smith managed it, and just how is is almost almost magical. It's almost impossible to explain, and he could scarcely explain how he did it. But one of the things he found was this ancient story of a flood that swept the world. Uh, it seemed an awful lot like the story of, of Noah's flood, but this was even older than the Noah story. Uh, and he found it. And, and when he did, he was he was so thrilled when he when he could finally read this writing that no one had read of thousands of years. That one of his contemporaries in the British Museum said that in a fit of ecstasy, George Smith, in the middle of the uh, British Museum, ripped off his clothes and is running around the room naked. And, and as you say, uh, later scholars came along and said that uh, this was in Victorian days. And what what shocked all his peers as a as a frenzy where a man ripped off his clothes might have been in reality just a man loosening his shirt collar. But even that would have shaken up his staid fellow workers. Well, let's just play with that image of the naked man running around in the library. Can you understand that kind of emotion? If you've ever tried to solve a genuinely difficult problem, it comes with maddening frustration where you're just not going anywhere and you think maybe it doesn't make sense and maybe it's impossible and how long have you been at this and it is just so disheartening that when it finally does come through, when you do see light through the clouds, this is this ecstatic moment, even on a small problem. And here was a problem that no one else in the world had solved and that he couldn't even, Smith couldn't even talk over with anyone because there was no one else who knew how to approach this thing. So when he finally saw it, yes, you can imagine that that truly would have been an ecstatic moment. Ecstatic moment. It's hard to fault someone for exuberance in a moment of ecstasy like George Smith's. Still, you might think, even if somebody has just succeeded in demystifying a massive mystery, uh, some riddle that nobody else in the world has ever unriddled before, well, stripping down in public, that seems a little out of place. Or maybe not, actually. Because it so happens, that's what the word ecstasy means. Literally, being out of place standing beside yourself, maybe even jolted outside yourself, beyond yourself. I've just decoded the word ecstasy for you from its ancient meaning. You're very welcome. Happy to do that for you. That's Constant Wonder this week. Our thanks to Edward Dalnick. His book is titled The Writing of the Gods, The Race to Decode the Rosetta Stone. And our thanks to Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson as well. He's author of The World Beneath the Sands, The Golden Age of Egyptology. I'm Marcus Smith, wishing you the thrill of some new epiphany or revelation, even if it does lead you to loosen your collar a bit. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.